and welcome back to The Moral Minority. I'm Joel Sam, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Luckett. Today, we have a guest, Rachel Picorni. Rachel um, is currently a data scientist in the Dallas area, and she also has um, a lot of interest in politics, and she has some opinions and positions that are really carefully thought out and also kind of unconventional. And so we're going to explore that over the course of this episode. Um, I got to know Rachel through a trip that we both went on to Israel last summer. And over the course of that trip, uh, we got to have a lot of discussions, um, some of them about international affairs and kind of like, what are we going to do about the whole Israel situation? But also we had a lot of conversations about domestic politics, um, and I'm really fascinated by the way Rachel thinks, and I think she um, is a good thinker. So Rachel, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us kind of how you got involved in politics and um, what are some of the, what's kind of your story with it? Yeah, thanks, Joel. How are you doing? Hey, Josh, listeners of the pod. Um, Good to see you guys. So yeah, Joel and I met going to Israel for 10 days. It was the best 10 days of our life. We had some zany bus conversations between the two of us and inevitably more be brought in um, people on either side of the bus congregating, shoving themselves into seats. And we had some good combos. So if, if this little podcast is half as good as that, then I'll be very satisfied. Um, I... As far as my political upbringing, I was, my parents are conservative, so I was raised in a conservative home, but I really was not very political for a long time in my life. Like high school, I did not know anything about it. I remember looking at a U.S. government book, senior year of high school, like reading what the differences between Democrats and Republicans are. And I was like, I don't know, I maybe could see myself here or here. Like I just was not informed. And I kind of thought that other things are more important than politics. Um, and so I just kind of, I was very curious by politics was not feeding my curiosity. And then um, it wasn't until probably junior year of college that I first got into it. I, there were some podcasts that was like a gateway to it all. And then it was sort of an avalanche Pandora's box at that point. I just kept wanting to learn more and more. And um, Israel was probably the most collaborative that I've ever felt politically, because I was a STEM major, Joel, you were a STEM major as well. And so this is not really our curriculum. And it wasn't our background having these discussions in class. But it was really cool to finally like scratch that itch going to Israel and hearing from very important um, political, politically engaged people. Yeah, I was, uh, I think it's important why I mentioned this when we were talking before the show, but this is a really unique and awesome episode because I am a democratic socialist um, and yeah. proudly so, proudly so. And, and yeah, you're, you're going to end up on more of the conservative um, uh, side of the ideological spectrum. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what I said before the podcast, like, Hey, you are in the lamb's den this is going to be fun. I'm excited. I'm actually intrigued uh, because uh, most of the conservative ideology I hear is from um, sometimes good sources like independent media, but a lot of times, you know, just what happens on Fox, which, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's uh, that's hit or miss as far as good mm-hmm. um, conservative content. 
And so I guess what's a great place to start is, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm not a democratic socialist because I started off poly, poli sci or started off thinking I'm literally, I'm a democratic socialist because as I've studied through the scripture, which is kind of my main, um, that's, that's my main expertise. That's the thing that I do for a living. Um, I was like, man, I, I care about the poor. I want a society that has a safety net for the poor, that has compassion Mm -hmm. for the poor. And so that was really what led me to be, um, more on the democratic socialist spectrum, especially because of like MLK and Malcolm X and kind of their ideology. Um, so as a as someone who's a little bit more on the conservative side of the ideological spectrum, how how do you like how did you end up there from your like Bible reading and from your um, uh, from how you understood theology? And yeah. another question to kind of like add to that, how would you define yeah. your political identity? Because as we've kind of hinted at and mentioned um, it's kind of unique in that you may, there's maybe multiple titles that kind of overlap to describe where you fall, because um, it's not necessarily easily into one of the more popular camps. So maybe can you maybe describe that as well? Um, yes, for sure. I think that you kind of take me to be a little bit more complex than I actually am, which I'm flattered <laughs> for that. Um, I would describe myself as conservative, probably if there is a scale where like one is flaming liberal and 10 is flaming conservative i'd be like a 7.5 or 7 or so um so that's probably where i fall on the spectrum josh i know that you're um a self-described democratic socialist and what about you joel like how would you i would describe myself as a left-leaning moderate so based on your scale i'd be like a three or a four Gotcha. Those don't exist, but but we but we will continue. <laughs> spectrums exist everywhere. Come on, <laughs> our whole world is spectrums now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So I guess I didn't really define myself very well at the introduction, but I would say seven point five. And then um, to go off of your question, Josh, about um, basically the, the role of government according to Bible, according to Scripture. And so I see it um, kind of from the start of very close to the beginning of scripture, starting in Exodus, God leads his people out of Egypt. And while he's doing so, he gives them a list of rules and he basically establishes his theocracy with the nation of Israel. And these rules are so carefully scripted and they're really amazing to go through. I know that Leviticus is sometimes known as a boring book in the Bible because it's tedious, but the attention to detail is incredible. And it kind of shows me how loving our God is and how much he cares about societies and how his people relate to each other and how that's reflective of their relationship with him. And so reading through these um, lists and these rules, and you kind of think like, this is perfect. Like if people can just follow this, if they can stick with it, if they can honor their neighbors, if they can give 10% to um, basically the church, to to the Levite clan who are the priests, um, if they can have correct judges and arbiters and um, and just exist peacefully all under God's command, like this could work so well. So you start with a lot of faith. And then as we all know, um, anyone who's read the Bible, it is not exactly pan out so perfectly. And one of the big reasons for that um, are people creating 
idols of things that are not God. And so these idols come a lot of forms. We see right after Moses comes down from the from the from Mount Sinai, right where he gets the Ten Commandments. Um, the people and Aaron have already created this golden calf that they're bowing down to in no time. It was just like forty days without a leader, and that's all it took. And that's kind of like set the precedent for the rest of Israel. They were um, driven by things that were not holy. They were driven by greed for money and for power. And um, you even see like after they lead, after they conquered a tribe, they were told not to take anything and they did and it caused their entire downfall. And you see that at the individual level and you also see it in the leadership level. And um, to me, that was very telling that despite being led by a perfect God with really good rules, human institutions can go awry so quickly because of our sinful nature and because it's so embedded in our hearts. And then you saw the the climax of this when um, Israel became a king. They didn't want God as their king anymore. They wanted to look like the other countries. And so they wanted God to give them a king in the form of Saul and then David and then Solomon. And it only took three generations and then after that, there was civil war. And right during Solomon's reign, it split into two, the Israelites and the tribe of Judah. And um, the Assyrians came in and they completely conquered all of Israel, the Israelite clan, the northern kingdom, and they led them off to slavery and they were no more. And the only remaining remnant was the Judah clan. Um, they were conquered by Babylon and um, it took a long time for them to come back and rebuild. And so, you know, right after that, concentration of power and after um you know these kings who were ruled by their own ambitions and not the ambitions of of god we saw it all go awry and so um i think that's evident of our sinful nature like i said and i think that it was um, catastrophic for the nation of israel and so they came back but they were never quite as strong and obviously you know they were ruled under Roman subjugation. Um, And so around that time, like 400 years of silence, they wanted someone to free them of Roman subjugation. They wanted um, a political Messiah, right? And so when um, God came to earth in the form of Jesus to be manifestly, to manifest himself among us, Jesus preached kind of a totally different perspective than what they were anticipating. And he looked at individuals and he looked at individual hearts and how individual hearts could be made right with God rather than how a nation again could be made right with God. And so I really like the verse um, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he's saying like people who recognize their own sinful nature and people who um, can see the devastating effects of their sinful nature are that's how you position and posture your heart to to be right with God and to receive his gift of salvation. And it's those people who can then be integrated into the kingdom of God. And so so Christ was, you know, instituting a kingdom, but it was not an earthly kingdom. It was a heavenly kingdom. And I don't think that he was quite the political disruptor that we sometimes prove him to be. Like Pontius Pilate had no problem with him and King Herod had no problem with him. It was the Jews who wanted him killed. 
So he was able to conquer death and he was able to, um, you know, he died this horrific sacrifice, but that was not the final say. He conquered sin and conquered death and let our, allowed us to do the same um, through his death so that we can one day be reunited with his kingdom. So all that's, so that's kind of my, you know, overarching view of the Bible and how it relates to human society. Um, but zooming back about what we're supposed to do now, you know, before we get integrated into the kingdom of God, I think that the two main lessons that I um, take away from that, and then I think that the the Bible gives us for instituting our own governments, and the first one comes from Christ's love and um, fascination with the individual, and that's that we're all made in the image of God. And I think that's really well reflected in our Declaration of Independence, um, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equally. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it's, in my opinion, it's God who bestows these rights to us, and it's government who secures it. And so to wrap up the the role of government in a bow, it would just be to protect those rights. And then the second um, big biblical takeaway for government that I see is that sinful nature um, that you that ran Israel into the ground, um, even a perfectly set up kingdom, you know, that was basically like the constitution of Israel was given to them by God, but it still failed because of the sinful nature. And so the main the main takeaway that I see there is just to limit the power of government and to to produce checks and balances and um, to not put all of our eggs into the basket of government because government is ruled by people and people are ruled by their sin nature and that needs to be kept in check. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was quite a soapbox. I love it. I love it. That's really good. I, uh, a follow-up that I would have to that, that was, uh, that was really well laid out, um, would be, uh, totally love the, line of thinking of you know like hey israel got set up with a great institution Mm -hmm. and that institution was still flawed and Mm -hmm. um and um we we're me and you are going to differ on our understanding of jesus's uh mission um uh, and i think that's that's kind of where where it tails off which is fine Mm -hmm. um but i i guess what i what i would be curious of is so if government is not ruling um, people um, and ruling is such a strange word because it could, of course, have a very positive connotation and a very negative one. Um, but let you know, if government's just allowing for people to to uh, or just securing people's freedoms to mm-hmm. do what they want, which I think on the surface, I think uh, everyone would agree with that statement. It's just an implementation of it. Um, so, so if government steps back, then uh, the fear that uh, particularly people like myself who fight for safety nets for the poor, mm-hmm. who fight for well-regulated markets uh, so that people don't get taken advantage of, mm-hmm. is that, well, then someone is going to fill that vacuum of power. And one of the things that we unfortunately see happening 
today and what's kind of happened for the last 100 years throughout American history is that um, corporatism has kind of filled that vacuum of power. So Mm -hmm. now corporations um, essentially function as ruling over people's lives, which is why people have fought for strong unions and well-regulated markets to avoid um, you know, the Carnegie's and Vanderbilt's of the world right. um, from having power over people's lives. And so how how would uh, how would someone with a more conservative ideology, uh, what would you say to combat that idea that I, I fear that um, uh, corp, uh, corporate power is just going to fill that vacuum of government power if government stands a little too hands off? Right. Yeah. And there is that is the main tug of war that we see these days is government on one end and corporations on the other end. And they could, you know, at a communistic level, maybe they could be tugging against the production of goods and services and things like that. Or at a more at a at a less communist level, they could be polling where government's trying to regulate and corporations are trying to get rid of red tape and get rid of regulation and have as much freedom as possible. And so I think it's just, you know, it's not binary. It's um, kind of establishing the point of equilibrium where these two forces could coexist well and peacefully for the good of the citizens. Um, I definitely agree with regulation. I think the FDA is really important. Because without that, like, you'll have um, food production companies will have no incentive to tell people what they're eating. I work for Southwest Airlines and we have like a federal aviation committee um, that the government has so many federal rules that we have to comply with. And they're always churning out new ones. But I do think that's important because if you don't have those regulations then we have every incentive to fly as dangerously as possible without killing people. You know what I mean? Like we can just push that line, but we have no incentive. We have every incentive to not want to kill people because obviously that would look really bad for business. And hopefully, right. hopefully they have a bit of personal remorse for that. Right. But we don't have the incentives to be overly cautious at the same time. Um, And so I think that it's important that government's kind of like a parent in that situation telling us how to play responsibly. And so it's all about, I think, um, debating how much overhead we would like for the government. And that's where people differ. And uh, I guess that's where a lot of our political discourse comes from. That's good. That's good. So I guess... Then my then my immediate follow up to that would be so I'm an African American mm-hmm. and uh, let's say I'm also a woman just for the sake of conversation why why would I vote for the GOP what what do they have to offer um, mm-hmm. or what does a more even if you wouldn't identify specifically with because you know each party and I'm not a Democrat uh, by any stretch I despise buys the DNC right now, <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah, they yeah. didn't turn out the so, best candidate you know, Right. Both parties are going to let off nonsense. Yeah. So let's not deal with the caricatures of what the GOP is. 
But just based off what the GOP platform basically is, kind of what conservative ideology is, why should a minority or someone um, who, uh, like a woman who mm-hmm. is uh, marginalized, why, why should they uh, want a society with, uh, without a social net, um, with uh, kind of less regulated, as you are, you articulated that their regulation is good, but a less regulated market, mm-hmm. and kind of, and and maybe even, um, maybe a little uh, too strong of a corporate bent that mm-hmm. kind of doesn't allow, or, or I'm I'm just I'm shooting off the hip and wondering if you can clear this up for me, but mm-hmm. maybe doesn't allow for. Uh, someone from a minority uh, um, position or a marginalized position um, to get as much access to resources. Why, why, why would I, you know, decide? You know what? Actually, what's best for human flourishing, um, mm-hmm. even for those who are on the margins, would be to vote um, uh, uh, GOP or vote for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that an inherently conservative idea is not to separate people based on race and religion and um, gender and orientation, even, and then package particular products to say, hey, vote for me because, like, vote for me, women, or vote for me, gays, because I will help you in this particular way it's not exactly selling a product i think that it just kind of helps in my opinion it helps people more and so i kind of subscribe to this ideology not because i'm a woman but because i'm a person and so so that's what i would um think personally i don't really i don't really try to ask what they will do for me based on my own personal identity, but what they'll do for me based as an American. Um, in response to your question about corporations, can you, can you say that again? Like you have a, you think that minorities might be bent away from. Yeah. So, yeah. So what you just articulated was the, was the, uh, uh, like the the more conservative ideology tends to fall away from identity politics, which, by the way, is very in its own uh, right appreciated because mm-hmm. the Democratic Party does exactly what you just said. They they're like, oh, I'm going to represent you know black people or gays or yeah. women, um, yeah. and their policies substantively do absolutely nothing for yeah. those groups. Yeah, you never want to be told that you should vote a certain way based on the color of your skin. Exactly. That's yeah. asinine. So, yeah. so that, yeah, that's a, that's a, that was a really good point. I, I think one of the things is, uh, so like as an African-American, so I guess it was less on the corporate tip and more specifically on the government tip and how corporations have already played out. And so it's kind of hard for um, people on the margins to, to really get access to the market or access to have power in the market or navigate the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, because our nation um, unfortunately has a pretty terrible history and still some, some not so great practices um, when it comes to who gets, who gets the majority of the wealth, who gets the majority of the power. Um, 
um, minorities uh, have, uh, by and large, needed uh, a safety net um, mm-hmm. in in order to flourish, uh, or in order to to bounce back and get into the market and be able to to really have like a uh, um, uh, effective activity within the American market. And so that's kind of why minorities shifted to the Democratic Party mm-hmm. in a longer history behind that, but in the in the 1960s. And so if we're already like very much behind on land ownership, wealth and all of those things because of our because ter- of the terrible history of America, mm-hmm. um, then 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 why should I um, I guess I'll go ahead and say as a marginalized person so mm-hmm. that because I don't I don't like to feed into identity politics either. Um, why should I want a society with less um, social safety nets? Um, when I'm when my people have already been put so far behind mm-hmm. um, with the awful policies that we've had throughout American history. Right. Right. So you kind of think that if life is a race or something that as a marginalized community member, your starting line is maybe five yards behind everyone else's. Yes, just okay. five yards to say the least. Probably, yeah. you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> five yards maybe for like a 40 yard dash. Right, right. <laughs> um, so b- before I answer that, one of the things that I've always kind of been curious about. Um, so let's say we're currently, you know, five yards, 10 yards behind that sort of thing. What do you think measurably would change in order for the for everyone to start at the same point for the starting line to be equal and what what like statistics you look at and can you say you know and obviously this will probably take some time but a hundred years from now if you can look at some data and say yes we're finally on the same starting point what do you think that data would look like yeah i think i think so like right uh there's a great book on this that everyone that's listening to this should read. It's called how to be an Mm anti-racist. Um, several great books on that, but that's one of, that's one of the more helpful ones that I've enjoyed. It's by a, a man named, um, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi. Um, but essentially, uh, right now, currently in America, um, there, there continue to be lack of resources distributed, to particular communities, either A, because of a history of racism or oppression, or B, because of current, um, maybe, sure, lighter forms, but consistent um, policies of racism. So examples would be um, everyone is doing drugs at the exact same rate, like across ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Yet African Americans and Hispanics are incarcerated, I mean, by gargantuanly large um uh 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 I'm losing a word here, differences than than our white contemporaries. Um so I mean right now you have like um uh you have these African American communities that um have they're they're not getting they're not their schools aren't well resourced yeah their communities have uh very terrible job markets 
Um, and, and, and none of this is due to like personal responsibility. I mean, for the most mm-hmm. part, you have people who, who, who desperately want to work, desperately right. want to. Right. And the kids are just starting out their life. Like they exactly. should be held responsible. Right. Exactly. And, and yeah, so you have, so you have these policies where you like, you get less resources for school, less mm-hmm. resources, uh, in communities for, for jobs. So people are creating black markets. And mm-hmm. then instead of us dealing with the fact that, hey, maybe they have an extremely under-resourced community and that's why they're selling the drugs to make money, we just go in and incarcerate them like crazy. Right. And so so, so, there's, so I would say like addressing those policies of like, hey, like let's end the war on drugs. Let's give more access to health care. Let's give more access to livable wage jobs. Those things begin to create a more equitable society. So my question to you would be, I guess, like, um, you know, giving more access to healthcare, getting more access to livable wage jobs, those are government infringing policies. Mm-hmm. So maybe what could the conservative ideology give that yeah. would still create that equality yeah. without the government infringing And it's probably helpful. Um, policies. It's probably helpful to clarify, Rachel, that Josh isn't actually discussing something like affirmative action, which disproportionately targets like minorities or these, you know, in, in the sense of like a racial sense, but it's the idea of helping minorities through economic means. And so this simultaneously not just affects minorities, it also affects white people in the working class where I'm I'm kind of a, I'm kind of an economic populist. If you gotcha. This is definitely steering away from this sort of affirmative action, identity politics idea, but towards mm -hmm. more of an economic stability. How do we invest economically to create a more equitable society for everyone? So that that's like, you know, and so the, the, the poor white working class was attracted to Trump's rhetoric in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw, we saw lots of data to support that. And then historically, like we've said, poor minorities have been attracted to the democratic party one way or another. Is there a way that we could use right. the government in a healthy way to appease the needs of all of those people? Or even, is there another option? Does, does the yeah. conservative ideology have another option? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I totally get what you mean that we're um, talking less about racial levels and more about economic class levels and the challenges that those classes face. Um, one of the things that you're mentioning, it is so hard to have underfunded schools. And I see this with kids who I work with in Dallas and they're just um, it's like inner city Dallas and they cannot sit. We do things with them in church and they really can't sit still and listen. And um, we've like tutored them and things like that. And it's just, it's not the same level as kids that you'd see in higher economic levels of society. And it's sad because it's not their fault. Like you said, it's underfunded schools. It's, um, it's teachers having to take care of way too many kids. Um, it's all these things. And then it's coming home and being in one parent households um, and not given the proper level of attention and homework help and just stability and all those things. And it can spiral and kids can um, have just this really hard starting off point that makes it very difficult to pivot later in life into something that's more productive and meaningful. Um, so 
addressing that issue, I'm a pretty big proponent of school choice. Um, And it's sort of like a incorporates the same free market ideals that I appreciate, but I just like the idea of competition and schools having to raise their level of play in order to compete with others. And um, I think that pumping more money into a problem will not always solve it. I think that giving people the correct motivation to improve themselves will. Um, So I'm kind of in favor of that. I'd be be interested to hear y'all's choices or y'all's um, thoughts on that as well. Just to clarify, other, does that involve yeah. like something like, hey, you get a voucher from the government and you can right. use that voucher to to pay for whatever school that you think is best? Um, what would what would the other option be? Uh, the other option is the government puts the money directly into the public school. Yeah, I, gotcha. I you know, right, John. Yeah, I think what you're um i think what you're making school choice i think is uh mm-hmm. is, is the is the voucher system mm-hmm. as, as 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 i've that's what i've heard from like wayne grudem and different bible teachers that are big proponents of that as well that that's normally what they're referring to as yeah. the voucher system. yeah yeah i think that makes sense um that the schools that have the more kids will then get more money through vouchers um and yeah i i'm i'm interested to hear y'all's opinion on that. So I'm going to go back to that. But then the one other thing that I'll add in is that I really love the idea of a community that knows itself really well, being the ones on the front lines to help with their own problems. Um, I think that people sitting in an office way off in DC might not know inner city Dallas as well as people who are here. And so, um, I think that if you're going to advocate for limited government, then you have to be so prepared to be in there in your community in the front lines and working with nonprofits and working with children. And um, I guess sort of the conservative plug for these things is that you can look at data and see that that states who are red um, have lower tax levels and they give to charities and nonprofits at almost like double the rate. And so um, I think it was really interesting. Emily Rowe actually said this on y'all's podcast a few um, weeks ago and it stood out to me, but she was saying that nothing really gets done at the national level. And she was advocating for grassroots movements and talking about what she's done to help people through um, this COVID-19 situation. And she was awesome. I commend her. She had really, she was doing really great things with all of that. Um, but I would sort of spin that into the conservative level and be like, yeah, nothing does get done at the national level. And it's up to us to improve our communities here at the local level. So um, I've got a couple comments on that. So I think one thing we may neglect in this conversation, it kind of goes back to something we talked about five minutes ago. Uh, we, we talk a lot about on this podcast about marginalized um, communities. And so usually mm-hmm. that it revolves around, you know, women, African-Americans, um, Latinx, these communities that are, and then, you know, we've also talked about the poor white working class as well. Yeah. Um, there's also a big element of something called the model minority, uh, which is East Asian, South Asian, and to a lesser extent, African immigrants. Yes. Um, yes. Typically, a lot of those um, stem from like influxes in the 60s and 70s. Um, and 
oftentimes this is called the model minority, right? Because um, some conservative commentators will say, hey, like, look at these racial minorities, like they are doing well in society um, mm-hmm. and they're not complaining about the same thing that black Americans and Latinx Americans are complaining about, um, but they're still able to thrive right. in our society. Um, and so there's there's a lot of like multidimensional things that are related to that um, that I think uh, are relate are tie into this idea of um, how do you enter the market and like, can you be a real participator in the market? So some elements to explain um, kind of the model minority phenomenon, you have to look at um, a lot of it stems from cultural ideology. So these model minorities are coming from countries where they literally um, emigrate to America because they have almost no other option. Like their choices between a working class a flooded job market, like a job market that that just has too many people, um, and the value of their investment is just better um, in, in a country like America. So that's what drives a lot of these people to come with basically penniless and to like build a life from the ground up. And so they really are starting, you know, to use the analogy we used earlier, like yards behind the starting line. Um, but the reasons mm-hmm. that they're able to participate in the market. Um, are kind of there's there's a couple dimensions to this, and this isn't universal. These are just kind of some broad strokes, but um, there's this idea that education is prioritized, and so mm-hmm. these cultural values of education are really baked in, and so these model minorities are able to participate in the educational systems that they're a part of, and they're able to excel because they invest all of their energy into it, and so because they invest all of their energy into something like education they are not, they're disenfranchised from other aspects of the American market, right? So education um, can only get you into a certain portion of the market, right? So you look at some stereotypical jobs, you look at the medical field, you look at the engineering field, um, maybe some other, you know, tangential fields where you just have to study and that's how you get the job. It's very meritocratic. Right. But right. if you look at fields like the arts, if you look at things like mm-hmm. sports, um, if you look at things like business, like really um, like entrepreneurship, all three of mm-hmm. those and probably other fields as well are very underrepresented by model minorities. And that's because mm-hmm. they lack the cultural impetus to excel in those areas. So all of the eggs are put into the basket of education and no eggs mm-hmm. are put into the basket of social skills, of um, athletic skills of artistic skills. And so they're actually disenfranchised from those market and they're at a statistical level, they're not able to be on an equal playing field because they lack those backings. Whereas for example, if you take the kind of the stereotype of the middle-class um, white person who doesn't have, who, you know, the, the average middle-class white person typically has, they're in little league, they're in some kind of music lessons, they're um, also have access to good schools. They, they have kind of a mix of everything. And so, and sometimes, not always, sometimes they also have like parents pay for college or they have a trust fund or something. They have some sort of economic safety net. Um, and so when it comes from, so, you, you know, we've had this conversation about, oh, like, hey, let's fight against these sort of um, racial arguments. Um, what really happens is, you know, the it's kind of, um, if you think about it in terms of race, that's kind of a distraction from the real problem, which is economic, right? If, if model minorities had 
didn't come to the country penniless, they wouldn't be forced to put all their eggs in one basket in order to thrive. Whereas um, Mm -hmm. other minority communities don't all put all their eggs culturally in the same basket. And so they're able to excel in other areas of the market. Um, So I I guess, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's just another angle that kind of leads to this conversation of how can we economically Mm -hmm. support communities, right? So we talked about schooling, but model minorities are are not a, would not be affected by changing the school system. Um, their problems right. are they lack a cultural access to um, athletics, arts, and social skills. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'm kind of like the prime example of that. Like I didn't really know how to talk to people until I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the first time, like, I played sports. <laughs> so <laughs> you, uh, you got pretty good at it. Yeah, there was two pieces to what she added there that I think was, and I, I actually loved that. Um, I wouldn't call it a rant, but um, that monologue just now, um, uh, uh, Joel. But also, uh, I think what I think Rachel just articulated exactly what the differences are between my ideology and hers. Um, is like you, like the, the, the difference between kind of this like personal responsibility and kind of, Hey, local is going to know what's best for a community because they're engaged Mm -hmm. with people and they're around people. Um, and government is going to just kind of, um, blindly throw money without knowing, uh, effectively how to how to, to fill the tank of the car, if you will. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, of course I argue the flip, like, Hey, people, most people care personal responsibility wise, mm-hmm. um, uh, significantly about their well being. They just don't have access to things. And, uh, uh, uh my fear is a, a local state level, um, is, is filled with its own types of prejudice, whether that be racial or economic or whatever, um, and can exclude people from resources probably more effectively because they know people, whereas the government just has more of a blind eye. We've seen that throughout African-American history where it's like, hey, we should just end slavery, whether we like slaves or not, or we should just end segregation, whether we like black people or not, so on and so forth. Bigger conversation. But one of the things I'm curious about is, um, so you you talked about uh, Rachel theologically earlier. You said that Jesus was uh, cared a little bit more on a spiritual individual level for people than he did on a kind of social social political level, mm-hmm. um, or maybe care isn't the best word. His ministry was more focused in one area than the other. Um, what, what I normally hear from evangelicals is, is is troubling to me because in one sense, they hold a more conservative ideology, ideology where they're like, hey, like um, the government doesn't need to infringe here. Like, um, uh, but then they say, hey, but the gospel just tells me, but the Bible just tells me as a Christian, I should preach the gospel and our churches don't need to be like local community centers or like, um, we don't need to prioritize the poor. We need to prioritize missions and evangelism. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're saying that the government shouldn't uh, care for, pe- right. you know, like look for look out for people, and then you're also saying 
as a church, our main responsibility is just preach the gospel. Then who takes care of the poor? Right. So I, yeah, I yeah. absolutely disagree. Um, right. And I think that Jesus tells us to take care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And you hear those three so many times throughout, obviously, the New Testament, Jesus said that. And then the Old Testament, too. There are so many um, regulations and uh, and encouragements to do that very thing. And I think it is absolutely the local church's responsibility to take care of the poor. And um, since, like you said, like since I'm a conservative and since I don't put my, you know, I have a skepticism of government, so I don't put my faith in them helping the poor. And so that's because I want to do it and I want to do it through our local church or local community efforts. And so, yeah, I think that it's embedded throughout the gospel that we should do this. And if people only focus on spiritual health without focusing on physical health, then you're missing a part of the person and you have to show that you care about them on a human level before they will receive your message on a spiritual level. Gosh, if all conservatives were like you and Russell Ward, (laughs) I don't even know if I disagree with y'all at this point. No, that's really good. There's there's an element to this that is, pretty interesting uh the idea that okay so let's there's this kind of libertarian maybe ideal of let's just keep the government small and trust that individuals who like want to contribute to society in a good way they will do it um, because they have that impetus within themselves and they will be able to better their communities um there's kind of an interesting angle to look at and there's and there's obviously two sides to this coin the question is is our economic system uh, fundamentally set up, like if you think about capitalism uh, with maybe no checks and balances or whatever checks and balances we have now, is it fundamentally too complicated for the local community to make a dent? Um, so for example, you have what you know what a lot of people are thinking about now, um, the billionaire problem. Like billionaires have so much money, it's just kind of incomprehensible mm-hmm. to think about how much money they have. Um, and the way that the market is now, like you think about um, something like Amazon, right? Amazon is just because they had a good business model, good business practices, they played the capitalistic game. They were able to just skyrocket and they've put so many local businesses out of business. Um, they were able to completely dominate a market. Yeah. And you yeah, have brick and mortar is mm-hmm. hurting. And you have, you know, Jeff Bezos at the top with just billions upon billions of dollars. Um, and there's this idea that the the situation is too complicated. Like, even if we have local efforts to provide jobs for um, working class people, like, and even if <clears throat> there's this question of like, well, are, are they going to be paid enough at a working class job to even be able to survive, to catch up? Because, you know, this idea of, all of so much money being just skyrocketing to the top. You know, you have Amazon, Facebook, um, Google, Apple, all of them have like billionaires at the top. Um, How do we, is the system too complex for local involvement to really make a dent in in actually helping people? Um, And then on the flip side, you could also say like, is the government too slow and, and cumbersome to actually make it done either. Yeah, deal with that first one though. Don't 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 skate. Don't uh, don't get don't give her the don't give her the out there. I like that first question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Um, there are certain 
power reaches that the local government um, will not be able to have because obviously the local government does not have much power and that's good. That's what I like about it. But systematically, there are some problems. You know, for example, people like to say, oh, conservatives are all about limited government until it comes to national defense, right? We like a big <laughs> military. Dude, and <laughs> I'm so excited for you to answer this because that is definitely one of my goals. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Um, but what I would say to that is that there is no alternative to a, nas- a big national defense in the private market. Like there's not going to be enough startups to spring up that will help us defend America. Like there are some things that only the national government can tackle. And I think that's kind of the beauty of federalism. I think giving the states and the local government a lot of power, but obviously we still need to be unified. And um, the Articles of Confederation, I think were a little bit too weak because they gave all the power to the states, whereas we needed to pay off our debts from winning the Revolutionary War and everything. So uh, yes, there are certainly um, problems that only the national government can handle. The problem that you were stating, kind of the problem of billionaires. So I agree that it is very unfortunate that Amazon has knocked off a lot of the brick and mortar shops. I think that it was sort of inevitable with the changing of the times, with the advent of the internet, it's, it's going to change so many markets. And that's just a tie that you cannot hold back and inevitably brick and mortar places that you have to pay rent for um, monthly will not be able to hold up against the reaches of the internet. And so I don't think it was as much Amazon's fault as it was just a byproduct of the times. And I think that another very scary trend is AI taking control and automated driving cars. I think that the um, number one profession for men who only have a high school degree is truck drivers. And I think like 60% of them are that. And so they could all get displaced with that. And I think that's very scary too. And so um, you're asking how much government should hold back the tide of innovation, particularly for... um, Well, let me rephrase the question. I I don't think the government should hold back innovation. I'm wondering if the, the system is set up in such a way that innovation is too few and far between like i think maybe you know 50 years ago innovation meant hey i'm going to start a brick and mortar shop and everybody can do that and everybody can actually be competitive for example innovation right. is so difficult nowadays it's very yeah. it's like almost impossible to really have a lucrative idea without having you know gone to school and and you have you have enough um of a safety net to where you have the actual free mental space to actually think about innovating because you're just trying to survive. Like if you're like a working class person, it's almost impossible to start an innovative business um, that is actually competitive because to be competitive, you have to have so much behind you. Right. Innovation is a lot more technological now, whereas it was more mechanical back in the day. Um, So yes, going with going off of what you said, small businesses are very important. I don't know if I would categorize small businesses as innovation ever, um, but I do think that they are a great backbone. And to, to plug conservative again, conservatism again, I guess, 
I think that the tax cuts helped corporations, but what they really helped was small business corporations. Um, and so I think that that was very beneficial to these people who are, you know, not going to be the next Steve Jobs, like you were saying, but who do have a small business and they were not, you know, gutted through taxes as much as they were. So I think that was beneficial to small businesses. Um, I think that it's hard to hold back the tide of innovation. Like we said, um, I think that billionaires aren't a problem um, per se. I don't think that wealth inequality is an issue in and of itself. I think that poverty is a problem. And so if I have $1,000 in the bank and you have a million, but you didn't exploit me, then we both still get to eat that night. And so um, I don't, I don't have as much of an issue with billionaires. Um, I feel like there's a piece of your question. I still haven't answered. Did, did that no, answer? It's, 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 it's it, the way he, it's a brilliant question. And so it's a little hard to, cause there's so many things to no legit. There's so many things to get into. Cause he's like, is our economy too complex for everyone to just run and there to not be a significant amount of rules because it's like, I like, yeah, like, yeah. And, and, you know, in 1950, after we had kind of come out of our economic depression, it's like, hey, I want to be innovative and I want to do something. It's like if two people decided to be innovative at the same time, they'd have probably made about the same amount of money with their right. local idea or whatever. Now, Jeff Bezos, I mean, my goodness, he's he's swimming in money yeah. off of one brilliant, not one, probably several, but one brilliant innovation. Mm -hmm. um, so now it's like when two people decide to be innovative, you're, you could be like my mom who owns a thrift store or you could be Jeff Bezos, you know? And so yeah. it's like, so the wealth inequality is so big now because our economy is so complex. And so the question is, like, is it too complex for there not to be a lot of safety net? And that, that's answerable, but it, you, it would take yeah, and it, <laughs> it I guess I guess the follow up, kind of like to, I don't want to be the guy proposing the solutions, but maybe I'll just throw one out there. No, yeah, right. Tell me. Um, what do you? How do you? <laughs> the idea is, it? hey, who you know, you talked about regulation earlier. Who can the government tell corporations like, hey, like if you're you can make as much money as you want, right? But if you're gonna make all that money, like at least pay your workers uh, like a a better wage so that they don't have gotcha. to be as competitive. Um, yeah, you never ever want like them to monopolize the market and then exploit their workers. Yeah, and I and I can see how that would be the danger of um, a place like Amazon. Like, let's say they put out every other store in the entire world, and they're the only people who sell goods, and then they can just pay their workers crap. And I think that would be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. But I also think that. This so like you said, this is a very hard problem to solve. I think it would be easier to solve it in the private sector than it would be in the public sector because I think you would have the exact same problem if the government took control over the means of production and then they had you know all the power that this hypothetical mm -hmm. monopolized Amazon would have, um, and then they could do. You know, they could do whatever they wanted with the workers, charge whatever prices, that sort of thing. And so. Yeah, I, I well, that's good. I have 
I have one more before yeah. we kind of question before we kind of close out. But yeah. I, but I do think I, I I agree that like no, the government should not just nationalize everything mm-hmm. um, because that makes it even more dangerous. Yeah. But I but I love where Joe was going, where it's like, but I so I per, so me and you may differ here, but I would say yes, government force Jeff Bezos to pay his employees at the bare minimum $15 an hour. Mm. Yes. Right? You'd advocate or, for, you know, raising yeah, minimum and, wage. and, and they also should give healthcare, even though I don't believe that healthcare should be tied to employment. Another difference I'm sure we have, but like, yeah, I, so I'm a, you know, I'm for health Medicare for all, you know, a, a, a socialized healthcare system, which is more yeah. complex than people think. Cause there's a lot of different strands of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess my final question I would follow up with is, so one of the things I fear about conservatism, and I, I want you to prove me wrong here, but one of the things I fear about conservatism is it seems to just <laughs> not come up with ideas. And this mm-hmm. is what I mean by that. So like we we put a man on the moon in the 60s. Yeah. Um, And then... Since then, for the most, so this is why I say that there's no such thing as a moderate today, because literally for the last 60 years, both parties are ideologically right. Um, They just play some kind of culture wars where they sound like they're on different sides of the spectrum. But even like President Obama's, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, Obamacare was from a right wing think tank. Like, like, no, like both parties are pretty much right wing they just give vocabulary that's different same thing with like you know um the democrats um significantly stepped up the war on drugs that was started by republicans so bigger conversation for a different day but it it seems to me like over the last 60 years america really hasn't like we just seem like we don't take risk anymore it feels like you know you know if someone were to say hey how can we have a better healthcare system? All, all we normally hear is, well, people just need to get jobs, you know, or what I normally hear from conservatives is, well, people just need to get jobs so they can have healthcare or, Hey, how can we take care of poverty? Well, people just need to work. And I'm like, it feels like from the left, we get all these ideas about like, um, a green new deal and, um, uh, you know, Medicare for all and, um, livable wage and just these big ideas that they're so big to the point where even the Democratic Party, the left party thinks they're crazy. But mm-hmm. then from the from the right, I just feel like we just constantly get um, personal responsibility conversations. And so I'm like, has the right run out of ideas? And is their ideology that really is the prevailing ideology in America over the last 60 years stopped us from ending up on Mars? essentially mm-hmm. like you know like what what are the or maybe you can answer this but just, what are the big ideas that the conservative ideology is is pumping out there that maybe just people aren't hearing um no i think it is more slow and steady like you said and it is it is slow incremental progress that you could see leaps and bounds generationally but you can't exactly see leaps and bounds year through year. Um, I think that it's more hands-off, like you said. And so we're not taking someone to Mars, but Elon Musk is taking someone to Mars through the private sector. Um, And then 
Additionally, I see how these ideas that you were talking about on the side of the left can be so tantalizing. And I think that that comes from our, it comes from like a beautiful place of our desire to see perfection in the world. Um, And I think that's, you know, reminiscent on our desire to be united with Christ in heaven and the kingdom of God, where perfection will exist. We'll all have our own individual roles and contribute to the common good and will be ruled by a perfect king. And I think that that is beautiful. And I think that we want a piece of that here on earth. Um, My main hesitation, like you said, is it is super, super risky. And we could, it could be great. And we could all, you know, pitch in in this more democratic, socially environment. We could have really just rulers and um, we could be productive and um, we could share well and all these things and it, it could go well. And I think it, we have this deep desire because of a desire for heaven inside of us to see these things enacted. But like you said, um, that my main hesitation is the risk and just historically it, it does not have a good track record. And that doesn't mean that it might not be able to in the future and, you know, make some tweaks in the system and everything, but I'm somewhat more risk averse. And so I think I'm kind of more slow and steady wins the race instead of risk at all. And I, that might just be like a personality difference between us that draws us to either side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So that's that, that was really well articulated. I like that a lot. All right. Last question for you, Rachel, before we wrap up, um, you've identified yourself as a conservative. How do you feel about kind of the his, the allegiance between conservatism and the white evangelical church? Um, do you have thoughts on that? Do you think there's a way to have healthy conservatism without sort of unhealthy political allegiances? Ooh, healthy conservatism, unhealthy political allegiances. Um, hmm. You know, there's a recent know, case I... study, uh, for example, Al Mohler, uh, who's pretty high up in the Southern Baptist Convention. In 2016, he yeah. said he wouldn't vote for Trump because of uh, these these character issues that he saw. But then just right. this year in 2020, he said he was planning on voting for Trump. So, mm-hmm. it, which is extremely surprising because he's already experienced Trump's presidency. Um, so anyway, that's just yeah. an, you know, guess, a really relevant I guess this, example. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. We don't want to be told to vote a certain way because we're black or because we're a woman or because we're um, sexual orientation identify a certain way. And I think I would extend that same principle to our religion. I don't think that we should be told that we should vote a certain way because of our religion. Um, Obviously the three of us are believers in Jesus Christ and we want the best for our fellow man and we want the best for um, our country, but we just differ on our ad on our opinions on the best avenue to get there. And so I think that we should all just understand um, the goodness in others and to not think that just because we differ on these ideas that you're a bad person or I'm a bad person. Um, George W. Bush had this really good line in a speech about fallen Dallas cops about five years ago. And he said, um, we tend to judge the other side by their worst example 
and we judge ourselves by our best intention. I thought that was so powerful. And so I think just, just recognizing differences occur, there's nothing we can really do about it, but not questioning the person's character at the same time. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll close out with a, with a couple of thoughts because I, I think that was really good, Rachel, how you, how you finish that up. And I, I just have a couple of thoughts, one on Albert Moeller and then one on kind of what you were saying. One, I think Albert Moeller's mistake in 2016 was voting only on rhetoric. Um, like the, the reality is someone's rhetoric could be terrible. Um, and I think that's where the Democratic Party has made a huge mistake is they like they villainize Trump and try to be an opposition party to his rhetoric instead mm-hmm. of being an opposition party to his policy. I completely agree. And, <laughs> you know, you know I mean? every every politician at that level is corrupt. And exactly. exactly. <laughs> you're never exactly. going to find a perfect politician. So exactly. just get them he's on substance. The, yeah, he's just the only one that's, that's saying what he thinks instead of all the other politicians just have decorum. And so I think that's where Albert Moeller made a mistake in 2016. Is like, if him and Russell Moore really wanted to go against Trump on policy, they could have. They were there. He had policy issues that I could be like, hey, you shouldn't vote for this guy because look at this policy that he's going to uh, propose. But if you're going straight off rhetoric, then I, it makes sense why after four years you would say, OK, but I like these tax cuts or, you know, while I disagree with tax cuts, he could say, I like these tax cuts. I like the religious liberty. I like what he's putting in the Supreme Court. So, yeah, we need to go ahead and vote for him. And I, I think I think that's where he where he made a. Uh, a big mistake. And I, I think I would just close out with that of just like, I think as a believer, um, our responsibility is, man, hey, let's let's really look at these politicians at their policies and and really make decisions based off policy. And then like in our church spaces, in our in our you know Bible studies, in our conversations with one another, let's have a battle of ideas. Like I I make a strong argument. I can make a strong argument for democratic socialism. And I think that Christians should really consider that as a healthy way to look out for the poor. And, you know, I love Russell Moore. And I think he makes, I think he says great things about human flourishing while still having a conservative ideology. And so I think let's have the, the battle of ideas in these conversations. Um, and then, and then, like you said, Rachel, we don't need to tell anyone who to vote for. But give, you know, just help people navigate. Hey, these are the issues. These are the policies. These how we, this is how I think the policies can be helpful or hurtful. Um, and then, and then let Christians go to the poll with exhaustive knowledge and, and make a decision from there. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, so much for being on the podcast. This was a really interesting conversation and I'm glad we we're able to do it with, with charity and joviality. Um, Listeners, thanks for listening. Um, as always, feel free to shoot us an email at themoralminorityshow at gmail.com. Uh, Rachel, do you have like a public platform that you want to plug that listeners can interact with you on? Ooh, um, you could follow me on Instagram. I also have a page called Perpetual Daylight Savings Movement. It is a main form of activacy. Joel is giving me finger guns right now. Um, <laughs> guys, it's ridiculous that we have such dark nights on fall and winter. Let's do something about it. Let's be the change we want to see in the world. This is a grassroots movement, people. We have, there's no government sponsorship whatsoever. This is the people fighting for the people. (laughs) 
Yes, sir. All right. Incremental change. Y'all are awesome. Thank you for what you do and perspectives that you give. Um, it was a joy to be on here. And thank you to the listeners who made it to the very end. Shout out to y'all. <laughs> All right. Um, and once again, we're actually now on Twitter. So feel free to follow us at Minority Show. Um, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.